Welcome to another episode of King Truth Podcast. This is your host, King Truth. Um, I know I've been away for a while. Um, I've had a lot of things come up that has prevented me from recording, but I'm back and I believe I'm back and better than ever. So today's episode, what we're going to talk about is voting. Um, We're now in that stage to where we're starting to see uh, presidential candidates, um, putting out their platforms, putting out their messages, doing debates, um, getting ready for the primaries, and ultimately getting ready for November 2020. But that's not what I'm going to talk about today. Um, Today, we're going to talk about why voting in this election is very important for the black community. Now, voting has always been important to us, whether it was after slavery, all the way up until the passing of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. We always fought to get our voices heard. We always fought to get that ability to vote. Um, And we were able to get that right due to the sacrifices made by our elders. You know, they fought, they died, all because they wanted to vote. But here lately, you're starting to see, well, prior to this year, you were starting to see a lot of black people be disconnected from the voting process. You would hear things like, my vote means nothing. But that's not the truth. Um, In this election particularly, it is dire that we take these elections seriously and pay attention to what's happening. Whether it's with the candidates or whether it's with the president, we must pay attention. And even then, we have to pay attention to what is going on, not just at the federal level, but we have to watch what's happening at the state level. We have to be active at the state level because yeah, you have federal laws, but you have these states that are passing laws that is affecting us and other minorities. So at the federal level, um, there are many issues that a lot of these candidates are talking about that they're making a commitment to. And as you listen to them, yes, some of them applies to us, but we have to make sure that each and every candidate commits to what we want as a block. Um, But what's more important is the issues that's going to affect us in the short term and issues that's going to affect us in the long term. For instance, September 30th was an important day. And a lot of people don't know this because it wasn't mentioned in the news. But 
the funding for HBCUs ran out and they only have enough government funding to last them until the end of the year. But Senate Republicans aren't moving at a pace to remedy this issue. Now, the president, when he ran for office in 2016, made these promises that HBCUs would be taken care of. But as we have seen in the three years that he has been president, that is not the case. In every budget that he has proposed, he has tried to cut funding to the Department of Education. And while making those cuts to the Department of Education, he's making he wanted to make cuts to funding for HBCUs. Um, now, here's why this is important. Four HBCUs right now face a collective $4.2 million funding shortfall. The issues with HBCUs that are different than PWIs is with PWIs, you have all these politicians and government officials and these billionaires um, that attended these schools. They graduated from these schools and they're considered boosters. They're considered, um, they give back to the school that they went to. For instance, the owner of Nike graduated from Oregon. If you're a football fan, you notice that Oregon pretty much wears a different uniform every Saturday. Um, the last total that I heard is that Oregon has 1200 different uniform combinations, which means you will never see them wear the same uniform all season. Um, but that comes from having that wealthy donor. Um, you have people like a Lindsey Graham who went to the university of, um, South Carolina. He gives back to the university of South Carolina. Um, but when it comes to HBCUs, we don't have a lot of people that, um, that um, graduated from there that are making those kind of um, funds. You know, we have um, people that graduate, they may go on to be doctors. They may go on to be um, attorneys. But what the, the issue is, they don't have those kind of funds to give back to their respective university. Now you do have some that did graduate from an HBCU, like a Diddy. He graduated. Well, he didn't graduate. He went to Howard, but he would help Howard raise money by hosting concerts. Um, DJ Envy went to Hampton and I'm pretty sure he gives back to Hampton to help Hampton out. But when you look at different HBCUs, like a Tuskegee, or a Fort Valley State, or a Lane College, or Savannah State, there are not a lot of big name people 
that come out of these HBCUs that can give them the money to sustain um, what it is that they need to keep their doors open. Um, a majority of the HBCUs are private schools. Well, as we know, private school costs more than public school. So, for instance, Lane College in Jackson, Tennessee is a private college, a private university. In order to go to Lane, you're looking at almost $13,000 a semester. And that's even if you're in-state. And you can look at a school like Vanderbilt where it's $18,000, $20,000 to go to Vanderbilt a semester because Vanderbilt's a private school. But Vanderbilt has a lot of big name donors that donates to the school so they can handle not getting the student body that they would ultimately get even though Vanderbilt still gets all of those students. But then when you look at a public school like a university of Tennessee, you're looking at in state, maybe four, $5,000 a semester. Um, you do have a couple public HBCUs, but the majority of them are private. Your Howard's that's a private school Hampton. That's a private school. Your public schools would be like Florida A&M, Mississippi Valley State, Tennessee State, Grambling, Southern. Those are public schools. So the issue with this funding not coming through, it doesn't allow the schools to keep programs that would ultimately help their students as well as doors could close. So the remedy to this was the house passed a bill that would extend this um, funding for two years at the amount of $250 million. Um, and it would be paid for by eliminate, eliminating subsidies for loan guarantee agencies. But um, Republican Senator Lamar Alexander, who is a Senator of Tennessee blocked that bill from being adopted in the Senate. And instead of letting that bill come forward, he leveraged the time sensitive situation of the funding for these schools by attaching that to legislation that he was proposing that includes several measures to partially update the higher education act. So the funding for HBCUs had to be in his mind added to another bill, right? That would help other people, not just us. We can't get bills passed in the Senate um, that are just strictly for us. Everything that we need or we want has to be attached to bills that are for other people. And that's not right because when you look at the LBGTQ community, they get bills that are passed for strictly the LBGTQ community. When you look at the Hispanic community, 
or the immigrant community, they get bills that are passed strictly for the Hispanic community or the immigrant community. But when any bill that is proposed that is going to help us as black people, we can't get that bill solely passed for us. It has to be attached to the other. It has to be attached to bills that help other people. So right now there's an argument going on in the Senate about that. Again, the funding is going to run out at the end of the year. If the Senate doesn't um, take care of that situation. So we have to use our voice and let the Senate know you pass this bill or you don't, you're not going to be in office in 2020 if you're up for election. Now, the, the most important and scary thing is the Justice Department has made so many moves that are redefining decades of civil rights enforcement, and it's reshaping the notion of whose interests the federal government should protect. So inside the Justice Department, there is a civil rights division. And this division has used the Constitution and federal law to expand protections of African-Americans, gays, lesbians, and transgender people, immigrants, and other minorities. And the efforts that have extended the government's reach from whether polling stations all the way to police stations. But under this administration and under his DOJ, the focus has shifted to people of faith, police officers, and local government officials who maintain they have been trampled by the federal government. So instead of it being a civil rights enforcement, it's more of a political right enforcement. Um, the civil rights division has supported state voting laws that would end up removing thousands of people from voter rolls. And we saw that happen in Georgia in uh, 2018. We saw that happen in Florida in 2018. And it's going to continue to happen. And this Department of Justice and its Civil Rights Division is supporting these voting laws that is removing people from these polls. It also pulled back on the oversight of police departments that have been found to have violated the rights of citizens in their jurisdictions. So this one is an Obama era thing. After the Michael Brown incident, after the Tamir Rice incident, after the um, Alton Sterling incident, Philando Castile, Obama went to his Justice Department, went to the Civil Rights Division, and they came up with what is called dissent decrees. Um, and this was to police the police. Are the police respecting the people of their community? Are the police protecting the people of their community? If they're harming the people of their community, they can be charged. They can be sued, the police department and the city. That came from under President Obama. Once this administration got in, 
and he appointed Jeff Sessions as the attorney general, he rescinded dissent decrees. So there's no government oversight of what these police departments are doing. Now, some states have decided to go against the federal government and have in installed their own dissent decrees, but those are the ones that are what people would consider blue states, like your Californias, your New Yorks, you know, places like that. But when you look at your red states, which is predominantly in the South, they don't have dissent decrees. So there's no government oversight for what these police officers can do to their citizens. And then the justice department and the civil rights division is picking and choosing the statutes that it wants to defend and is letting others go. And that has created a new overall positional civil rights that, de that deviates sharply from the years in the past. So in offering these civil rights protections to a new set of groups, the department has lifted protections for others, especially African-Americans. So we have to be vigilant about that. It's, it's something that's not in the news. It's something that's not being talked about, but it's happening. And if we allow this to go on for four more years, who knows what's going to happen? Now, in the long term, this president and Senate Republicans had a plan, and their plan started at the end of Obama's administration. So, as you know, Supreme Justice Anthony Scalia passed away in the final year of President Obama's administration. He nominated a Supreme Court justice. Mitch McConnell refused to bring that nomination to the floor. And it was all part of a strategic plan. The plan was get a Republican into the White House. If we get a Republican into the White House, it don't matter who the Republican is. Their plan the Senate Republicans plan was to change the courts for an entire generation. And since 2017, that is what has happened. Trump and the Senate Republicans have changed the courts for the next generation. This is what Mitch McConnell said two weeks ago at a Trump rally in Lexington, Kentucky. He said, working together, we're changing the federal courts forever. Nobody's done more to change the court system in the history of our country than Donald Trump. And Mr. President, we're going to keep on doing it. My motto is leave no vacancy behind. So as of November 10th, 2019, the United States Senate has confirmed 161 Article 3 judges that have been nominated by President Trump. They have um, approved two associate justices of the Supreme Court of the United States, 45 judges for the United States Courts of Appeals, 112 judges for the United States District Courts, and two judges for the United States Court of International Trade. 
And there's currently 44 nominations to Article Three courts awaiting the Senate's actions, including six for the Courts of Appeal, 37 for district courts, and one for the Court of International Trade. There are currently two vacancies on the U.S. Courts of Appeal, 87 vacancies on the U.S. District Courts, two vacancies on the U.S. Court of International Trade, and 16 announced federal judge vacancies that will occur before the end of Trump's first term, five for the Courts of Appeal, 11 for District Courts. Now, here's why this is scary. Trump isn't vetting any of these candidates. What he did is he went to the Federalist Society and the Heritage Foundation. They gave him a list of judges that they wanted. They made this list of judges that they wanted. And all he did was submit this list to Congress. Now, about this list is each one of these judges are completely partisan. They're all Republican, super Republican, diehard Republican. If you want to know how diehard Republican they are, they're like a Dallas Cowboy fan. They're not going to win a Super Bowl. But those fans are loyal. And that's what these judges are. They're loyal to the party. They have a Republican agenda. And they're now sitting on the courts hearing cases that they have to judge, that they have to make a decision on. The majority of these candidates and these judges that have been approved are late, mid to late 30s. Uh, the average age, I believe, is 50. But they're mid to late 30s to the age of 50. And remember, these judge seats that Trump is appointing are lifetime seats. That means they can sit on this seat for 30 to 40 years. They cannot be removed unless they're impeached. So you'll have these judges that are going to be hearing cases such as Roe v. Wade. You're going to hear they're going to hear civil rights cases. They're going to hear immigration cases. They're going to hear a lot of these cases. And because they are so they are so partisan. They're going to ultimately go towards what the Republican. The Republican policy is Republicans wants to overturn um, Roe v. Wade civil rights to Republican to Republicans is a dirty word. So you have these issues that will be coming up with these judges. Now, here's why this isn't good. I'm going to talk about a candidate that was just um, put in front of the Senate a couple weeks ago. Um, his name is Stephen Menashe. And this guy is an ally of Stephen Miller, who is the person that writes all of these racist immigration laws for Donald Trump and the education secretary, Betsy DeVos, who is the worst education secretary in the history of that division. 
And he has a history of inflammatory statements about Islam, about LBGTQ uh, people, and about race. And the sad part about it is this guy's going to fill the seat that was once held by Thurgood Marshall, the person who ultimately went to the Supreme Court, listened to the Brown, the board, Brown versus Board Education, and wrote the opinion for it. He's taking his seat in one of the district courts. And it's not, again, it's not just that Trump has appointed new judges at this pace. The judges that he's picking have an average age of less than 50. They serve for decades. They're overwhelmingly white. And only six of Trump's new appellate judges are non-white. And only one is a woman of color, but she's not black. None of the judges, even with the non-white ones, they're not African-American. What ultimately unites these judges is their ideological bent and reading of the Constitution. And many of them subscribe to originalism which is a school of thought that the Constitution should be read as it was intended when written some 230 years ago. So some of these judges, like Menashe, have backgrounds that have even turned off some of the Senate Republicans. But even though they're turned off, they're not voting against them. So in the past, Menashe accused Human Rights Campaign, the prominent LBGT rights group, of having... Um, exploited the slaying of Matthew Shepard while ignoring murders of gay men. He's criticized Take Back the Night marches, drawing attention to sexual assault. And he defended a white fraternity's decision to host a ghetto night party, saying the backlash to the party was evidence of a, a regime of intimidation in which students are chastised for unpopular speech and expression. And it's not just his old writings that makes him bad. As the acting general counsel for the education department under Betsy DeVos, he came up with an illegal plan to use social security data to deny students debt relief to those who claim they were ripped off by shady for-profit colleges. So these colleges like an ITT tech, colleges like that, President Obama took them to court, ultimately had them shut down, and they had to forgive all these students' debts. Well, what he did and what he came up with was a plan, which is illegal, to use our Social Security data in order to deny us debt relief from those colleges. And Mitch McConnell isn't just filling the courts with judges who he hopes will call balls and strikes, call everything right down the middle. You're not swayed to one side or the other. But what he's appointing is judges who will reshape the American judiciary to his liking for generations to come. 
him and his Republican colleagues in the Senate are enabling Trump's reckless agenda, stacking the courts so they can roll back civil and human rights for decades to come. And a dozen of these nominees have refused to answer a very important question, whether they support the Supreme Court's holding in Brown v. Board of Education, which outlawed segregation in public schools. It ruled that racial segregation of public schools is unconstitutional. And none of these judges that have been appointed will not say yes or no. What they'll say is, I cannot give my legal opinion on that matter. That's not good enough. Because how do we know where you stand? If you get in, are you looking to overturn Brown versus Board of Education? And now Trump's judges will control the U.S. law and the courts for the next 40 to 50 years. And that is a scary thing. Now, when it comes to state elections, it's very important that we vote in state elections. Two weeks ago, there was a gubernatorial um, race in Mississippi. The Democrat did not stand a chance to win. And it's not because he was a bad candidate or that the Republican was a better candidate. No. It's because of the Constitution of Mississippi. So the state's 1890 Constitution, which has not been changed, set racist election rules. So in Mississippi, winners of statewide office have to clear two hurdles. They not only have to win a majority of the state's popular vote, but a majority of the House districts as well. If they can't win both, then lawmakers get to pick a winner if the candidate fails to satisfy that. So what that means is they have a popular vote and an electoral vote, just like we do in the federal election. Now, this state constitution was written by white supremacists who tried to ensure that newly enfranchised African-American people never took political control in the state. Well, in 2011, Mississippi's congressional maps were drawn so racially skewed in pretty much white people's favor that a federal court forced that state to withdraw one of its most egregious districts. But under the current system, Mississippi's ability to pack African-Americans into several small state legislative districts gives its white population much more power when electing candidates to statewide office. And when it comes to different states, a wave of new voting laws has emerged, especially in the South, potentially disenfranchising a large percentage of roughly 3.72 million unregistered African-Americans in this region. So even though we have the voting right of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, remember the Supreme Court repealed some of the um, parts of the Voting Rights Act, which is allowing these um, 
states to change their voting laws. Also, you have these new abortion laws that are coming around. So the governor of Georgia signed into law one of the strictest abortion bans in the country. And followed by him, the Alabama State Senate removed exceptions for rape and incest from their anti-abortion bill. And there are four heartbeat bills like Georgia's that would ban abortion as early as six weeks. And that has passed this year alone. And total bans on abortion are under consideration in Alabama and other places. And supporters of this legislation has stated openly that their goal is to challenge Roe v. Wade. This goes back to the courts. This goes back to the judges on the federal level that Trump is appointing. So Georgia became the fourth state this year to pass a heartbeat bill, which bans abortion as soon as a fetal heartbeat can be detected. Now, this can be as early as six weeks and way before many women know that they are pregnant. And the bill contains exceptions for medical emergencies as well as for rape and incest. But someone who wanted to obtain an abortion after a rape would have to file a police report. And in their heartbeat bill, women can be criminally prosecuted for having an abortion done by using drugs if they travel out of state to have an abortion. But here's the crazy one. And this happens to a lot of women and they have no control of this, but they can face criminal prosecution if they have a miscarry. That's on the state level. That's in the state of Georgia. In Ohio, just in April, they introduced a bill that would ban most private insurance coverage of abortion. And this, and it gained added attention uh, when it was reported that the bill allows insurance companies to cover a procedure for an ectopic pregnancy that is intended to re-implant the fertilized ovium into the pregnant woman's uterus. What? Never heard of that. So I had to do some research. I had to know what is an ectopic pregnancy. And this occurs when a fertilized egg is implanted into the fallopian, toe, uh, fallopian tube rather than in the uterus. And these pregnancies are never viable. And the only reliable treatment is an abortion. And it's not possible to remove the egg from the fallopian tube and reimplant it into the uterus. And if it is left untreated, an ectopic pregnancy can be fatal. So they're saying, eh, we're going to save the egg. You might die. And these bills are starting to get ridiculous. Again, the bill in Alabama would ban abortion at any point in a pregnancy at any point. And the bill would not punish the patients though, who get the abortions. 
So they can go get the abortion. But it could send the doctor who performed the abortion to prison for up to 99 years. So your vote has consequences if not used or if you don't pay attention. Your vote determines civil rights and the makeup of our courts on the federal level and voting rights and abortion laws, just to name a few, at the state level. If we do not pay attention and use our vote wisely, our kids, our kids' kids are going to see a different America than the one that we grew up in where people had empathy, where people cared, where people treated people with dignity. Now you just have hateful people in charge. And part of the problem is it's not just, it's not everybody. It's a certain group that is mad right now. They're big mad right now because in the next 10 to 20 years, they're not going to have their way. And that is white men. They're going to be losing power, whether it's to a woman, whether it's to a person of color, whether it's to a LBGTQ person, straight white men are scared. So they figure if we can change the courts, if we can change these state laws, we could keep power as long as possible. And we just have to let them know that their time is up. It's time for other people to run this country. So go out and vote. Just like Malcolm X said in 1964, it's either the ballot or the bullet. And I choose the ballot. We have to use our voice. We have to vote. So get out and vote. Well, that does it for this episode of King Truth. Um, I'm glad to be back. Um, I hope y'all enjoyed this episode. Please follow me on Instagram at King Truth Podcast. You can follow me on Facebook at King Truth Podcast. Um, Subscribe to the podcast. I'm on iTunes, uh, Google Podcasts. Also, got some good news i am now on iHeartRadio, so you can subscribe to the podcast through iHeartRadio as well so please subscribe leave a comment let me know what you think and i'll talk to you next time